The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We were born adversaries of God. Actually, every person is into this world an enemy of God, and that's why Jesus said you must be born again. And God in His grace gave the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of His gospel to this lost world that sinners might hear that gospel, believe, repent, embrace Christ as Savior, be saved and changed from an adversary to even a friend of God. What a great reminder of a blessed truth. With that, as fellow friends of God, those of you who know Christ and actually everyone, I invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to resume going through the book of Corinthians. Uh, We're nearing the finish line. There are 16 chapters in our English Bibles in this New Testament epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he started 2,000 years ago. He planted that, preached the gospel. Some people got saved, organized. They became a church. He pastored that church, was there for a year and a half, tried to establish a foundation, and then God called him to go work with other churches and plant other churches. And so he was gone for some time, a couple of years. The Corinthian church began to grow, but also uh, Satan began to attack and the sinfulness of humanity also crept into their church. And as a result, the Corinthian church, after Paul left it for a couple of years, had many problems. It was rife with problems. And Paul articulated that in chapter 1, as we saw a long time ago. But we need to be reminded of that because the 16 chapters of the book of Corinthians is a letter of rebuke. Paul wrote 13 New Testament letters. They're not all letters of rebuke. Uh, some are letters of commendation. When, when you read them and you, you feel good, very positive. The book of Philippians of Thessalonians, chapter the first book of Thessalonians, those are very positive letters. This is a very negative epistle because it's 16 letter, uh, chapters of a rebuke from their pastor, the Apostle Paul. And uh, he lays it out in chapter 1 that their main problem is they, that it's manifesting itself is they are divisive, they are argumentative, uh, they're quarreling with one another. It is public. It is scandalous. It is known. That is the reputation. It's leaking out into the community. It is shameful. It needs to stop. That's how he starts chapter one. You're being divisive and quarreling and argumentative and infighting and not getting along and being a lousy testimony to the world. And you're behaving in a way that Christians shouldn't behave. And then he goes chapter by chapter to specifically point out where these areas of uh, challenge are and where they're fighting about the things they're fighting about. He's just trying to sort out each thing. You're fighting and arguing about, uh, you got cliques, uh, you got the wrong attitude about spiritual leadership. You're suing each other in pagan courts. Uh, you're depriving one another when you come for communion. Some of you are even getting drunk at communion in church. Some of you are totally neglecting uh, others in the church who don't have any money and they're hungry and you could care less and these are supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ and then you got the spiritual gifts that you're totally abusing you're totally self-centered and not focused on others you're not honoring Christ and then he goes on for the rest of the book and he's going to point out some even theological problems that they had with respect to the resurrection and a couple of other things so it's just this huge long uh, rebuke from the apostle Paul but the beginning of the epistle, he commends them for their faith. That's very important. He acknowledges, I preached the gospel, you received the gospel, you embraced the gospel, you were born again. You're really Christian. You really are. Paul never doubts their faith, that they are sincere Christians. This, this is encouraging, actually, for us. 
meaning that Christians can sin, Christians can get pretty messed up, and they do. That's why the Bible is so realistic in how it presents humanity. We are fallen, we are finite, we are weak. We need God's help in an ongoing way. And so the Corinthians, they're a great example, reminder for us that we are, we're, we're weak. We're really not any different than the Corinthians. So we can't get into this uh, idea or habit that we can look at the Corinthians down our nose and shake our head. They were pathetic because, you know, we could say the same thing about ourselves. Every one of us can at any given moment uh, struggles with sin, great sin. And it's just by the grace of God that we stand. So this is a good reminder. And so Paul wants to help them, but he has to be honest and he has to confront the sin and get it out so that there can be some healing and some change. So he's been doing this for 12 chapters and now he reaches the apex actually of the epistle. We are now in the apex or the highlight or the crescendo of where Paul has been going case by case, exposing all these sins. And now he's actually going to give a diagnosis of the problem and not only just a diagnosis, but a solution to their problem. Paul is the the great count, the great biblical counselor. And the way he sums it up is amazing. You, your church is rife with problems. It is complicated. It is complex. It is ugly. But his diagnosis is rather simple. What the Corinthians problem was, they just weren't loving one another. That's it. Sounds pretty simplistic, doesn't it? They weren't loving one another. Um, so that's the solution, or that's the problem. Is they weren't loving one another. And then the solution is just as simple. He says you need to start loving one another. Very simplistic for our ears today in a day and age in which we live where um, when we have the, the counseling around the world where everybody needs counseling, a lot of people need counseling for different things, and especially even in the Christian world, the solution isn't always... Or the diagnosis isn't always, you know what, when it comes down to it, the reason the two of you don't get along is you're just not loving one another as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And the solution is you need to love one another the way Christ loves. Some people would blow that off and call that a platitude. Oh, that's ridiculous. That is superficial. That is shallow. No. That is exactly what Paul does here. Christ-like love. Love is the greatest virtue. That's going to be his argument. It's true. Many people for years have called John the Apostle, the Apostle of Love, because he does talk about love, particularly in his first epistle. But you could equally say that Paul is the Apostle of Love as well. He talks about love in just about every one of his 13 letters, and he does it like no one else in chapter 13. This is a famous chapter in the church and in history, in all of writing of this great hymn of love as Paul defines what love is. So let's go ahead and look at it what Paul has to say about true love and how it is uh, the problem also and the solution of the Corinthian Christians and all of their problems. They have lost focus of the priority in the Christian life, which is love, the love of God, the love that comes only in Christ. And so he already said in the beginning of chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, which we looked at, is you're doing these spiritual gifts, which you make a big deal about, and it's a priority, but you're using your spiritual gifts lovelessly, selfishly, without the motive of love towards one another. And it doesn't matter what you do in service in the church. It doesn't matter what you do in service as a Christian in your home, in the church, in the world. If it's with the wrong motive, if it is lacking biblical love, it is nothing. It is meaningless. It is worthless. Wood, hay, stubble to be burned away even 
in the future when God examines it. And that's his argument in the first three verses. So he says, you know what? You need to love. You need to love. You need to love. You need to stop doing things in the church without love. And then he goes on because Paul's very practical. So he needs to define for the Corinthians what love is very specifically. When you use your spiritual gift, do it with love. But as a matter of fact, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pause and I'm going to clearly, very specifically define for you what love is, not the love of the world. That is a counterfeit. That's pseudo love. Don't get lost in that. Don't be confused or deceived by that. The world thinks they know what love is. They don't. But here is true biblical love defined by the Apostle Paul, verses 4 through 8. And here, as Paul gives this great delineation, this beautiful vignette that is unparalleled by anything in writing of a definition of love, it is a working definition of love. Actually, there's like 15 nuances or virtues about love that Paul characterizes here, 15. We aren't going to cover all 15 today. I don't want to just gloss over these and read them real quick and do a drive-by. We need to camp out a little bit because it's such a priority. He's very specific. These words are very specific. They have practical relevance to every single one of us. They will make a difference in our walk with Christ, our families, and our church. So we do need to spend a little bit of time understanding the true meaning of love. It's an appropriate time to stop and pause. And with regard to these 15 virtues or descriptions of love, it's like the Apostle Paul took agape, God-given love, and then looks at it through a divine prism and the resulting refraction is this glorious spectrum of practical love that all of us can learn from because it is so multi-dimensional so let's go ahead and look at these characteristics or virtues of true biblical love i'll read verses four through eight love is patient love is kind love is not jealous Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Then he goes on to extol the virtue of love, concluding in verse 13. So we're going to go ahead and look at these uh, practical working definitions of love, examine them in their context, and then ask God's help to have us apply those in our own life. It's a lifelong quest. It's difficult. It's hard as a Christian. By the way, depending upon your English translation, mine is the New American Standard. At the beginning of verse 4, it says love is patient. So it sounds like love is being defined with an adjective, patient. But just so you know, in the Greek text, All the words that describe love are actually verbs. They're verb forms. They're actions. In other words, love isn't truly love until it's put into action. It's not just a concept. It's not just theoretical. Not just words only. It's when you do it, then it becomes love. And that's the way Paul describes it. So that's very important. So some of your English translations may be a little bit misleading. Like mine is love is patient. Literally, it should be translated. Love is the act of being patient. That's a literal translation. Love is being patient. Present tense, ongoing, it's an act, it is deliberate. I'm responsible for doing it. That's true love. And when I show patience through my actions and the way I walk and live my life, that's biblical love. Also, a couple other footnotes about the love we're talking about here that's being defined. 
This is a supernatural love. And only Christians, only born-again Christians, only people who know Jesus Christ personally can attain this level of love. If you are an unbeliever, you don't know Christ, you can't love at this level. You can love at a human level. And there is a legitimate, real love at a human level that is natural by virtue of the fact that every human being is made in God's image and reflects some of the attributes of God by virtue of the image of God and also common grace. So there is a legitimate love, but this is a supernatural love. This is a divine love, and it only belongs to the accessibility of Christians who are born again. And when you become a Christian, God puts the Spirit of God to live in you. The Holy Spirit of God lives in every Christian. And the Holy Spirit is the one who enables and empowers a Christian to actually have and manifest and live out true, supernatural, divine, eternal, heavenly love in a way that a non-Christian can't. So when you read this, you might be discouraged and say, wow, this is, well, this is really hard. This is impossible. This is, sounds good on paper, but how can we do this? Well, we can by virtue of the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living in us who truly can empower us to live in a way that God requires of us. Not perfectly in an unbroken way, but the direction of our life. We can live in a way and in a growing way in obedience to God through God's help. So it's a supernatural love that the world can't achieve. They aspire to this, but they can't realize that in this lifetime. So that's also important to keep in mind. Um, So the way Paul, he kind of, there's no way to outline this because he's just describing what love is. But the first two in verse 4, they are positive components or realities about love. Love is being patient. Love is being kind. Present tense, continually and ongoing. Then the next several, eight or so, are actually negative. He defines love by saying what it is not. That is the best way to diagnose anything, whether it's in medicine and a disease or in sports and you're a coach or as a teacher in the classroom when you're trying to communicate what truth is about a particular item, concept, or whatever, you have to define it not just in positive terms, but what also it is not. And Paul wisely does that as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. So clearly and indelibly, there is a very unmistakable picture of what true biblical divine love is by the time we're done by virtue of the way he describes it, positively and negatively. Here's what love looks like, and here's what love does. Here's what it doesn't do. So if you're doing this, you're not being loving. That's the implication. Another very important footnote is Paul isn't just randomly saying things like love is being patient, love is being kind, love is not jealous. And just to do that for the sake of explaining love, he's actually letting the Corinthians know it's a rebuke to them. Here's what you have been doing and here's what love is. He's contrasting the Corinthians behavior that he just talked about for 12 chapters with what true love is. So every one of these descriptions of love can be found somewhere in the book of Corinthians where the Corinthians were violating that concept of love. So it has to be applied directly to the Corinthian congregation. So it is localized and at the same time, these are universal truths that apply to every person, every believer throughout all ages. So there is much that we can take away from and apply to our own life as we sit in the shadows as listening to Paul talk to the Corinthians, we can apply this to our own life as well. So with that, let's begin describing and looking at the way Paul gives and delineates biblical love. First, we'll look at the, the first two positives. By the way, we're not going to get through this whole list of 15 today, as I said, because we want to take our time, do it the right way, let it sink in, make sure we truly understand it, and then ask God's help to keep trying to implement this in our own life. So first I want to look at the positive components or elements of love. And those are the first two words. And we'll take them together. Love is 
patient. Or love is being patient. Love is being kind. First is love is patient. And it's a compound Greek word. And it matters because there are different words for patience in the New Testament. This one is macrothumia, long-tempered. Long-tempered. It has to do with kind of our emotions, our state of mind. And true biblical love, a person that's characterized by true biblical love with respect to their uh, inner demeanor, their ability to control their emotions, they are long-tempered. They have a long fuse. They can endure trials, challenges, difficult people for a very, very, very long time be interesting to go around and have everybody share what their temperament is like. Are you prone to having a short fuse or a long fuse? Now, some of you might say, well, I'm a type A personality, so I have God's given me a short fuse. Well, not really. Don't make excuses. It doesn't matter how you were born, what your inclination is, what your personality type is, what your excuse is, what your hormones are, what your pills are, what your experiences is, what your background is, how you were born and raised, what circumstances you live in, where you're currently, who your current boss is. It doesn't matter. If you are a Christian, we are all held to the same standard. Biblical love is long Tempered, it has a long fuse. And so this is a very specific word. By the way, this word macrothumia is specifically in reference to being long-fused, patient, tolerant with people. Not circumstances, but with people. Very important. And not just people, but people that are hard to deal with. People that are hard to put up with. People that are hard to be patient with. With this is a supernatural ability to do that with the help of God. Love is being continuously patient because Jesus Christ would us. By the way, every one of these virtues of love is uh, the, the greatest example of all is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can read the Gospels and take every one of these attributes of love and find an example of Jesus doing that very thing. Was Jesus long-tempered? Did he have an amazingly long fuse with difficult people where he could have retaliated or rebuked them or uh, been short with them and lost his pity? Yeah, but time and time again, you see the perfect, sinless Lord Jesus being incredibly long-tempered and patient with people who were annoying, who were sinful, who were unfair, who were ignorant, who accused him, who beat on and on the list goes. He could have been impatient with Judas the betrayer, but he wasn't. He was very patient with Judas. He could have been impatient with Peter many times when he wasn't. He could have been impatient with even Herod, who was wicked, and he was patient with Herod and said not a word in retaliation to Herod. So the Lord Jesus is the paragon or the example of these wonderful, blessed virtues. But speaking of patience, just a little bit more information. Uh, one pastor says this and says that, well, it is the ability to be long-tempered, is the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again and yet not get upset or angry or not get upset or angry or frustrated. That's this ability. One of the corollary truths is when you are macrothemia, you're supernaturally biblically patient with somebody who is hard to deal with. This could be somebody that lives in your house. Why don't you start there? That's what one pastor said. Every one of these virtues starts by practicing them in your home. With your spouse, with your children, with your siblings. I totally agree. That is the most challenging place to practice these things, isn't it? Because when we're out of the home, we're on our best behavior. That's one reason why. The other reason why is because 
These are the most difficult and challenging to practice with people you know well. People you are familiar with. That's the problem. The more somebody becomes familiar to you, the more you know about them and the more you know about their weaknesses that get on your nerves. That is the problem. Familiarity breeds contempt. Whoever said that was very wise and knew human nature. So let's, well, wow, how do we do this, Pastor? I'm not very good at this, or I need to work on this, or I need to grow on this. How shall I improve? Well, I'd say all of us, let's start at home. Let's start at home with our spouse, with our children, with our parents, with our siblings, or whoever's living in your house. Actually, no, I changed my mind. Before you start there, start with when you get in the car and start driving home, being patient with all those fools and idiots on the road that you have to drive with. Because that's many times how we think everybody else is an idiot except for me when I'm driving. And we lose our patience, patience with people. There's a great place to start. God, help me to be supernaturally loving towards other people, starting with my family. God, I need your help to do it. That's what, And I need the Holy Spirit's help to do it. I need to be walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit. That is Galatians chapter 5. All those virtues are the fruit of the Spirit, the byproducts of living in obedience to the Holy Spirit of God that lives in you, Christian. What are the virtues of the fruits of the Holy Spirit? The first one, not by accident, is love. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All those, the first one is love. A manifestation of love is actually patience, patience with people. And you can't do that unless you're walking in the Spirit. And you can't walk in the Spirit unless you are consciously communicating with God and willing to submit to and ask for His help. God, God, help me. Be patient. Now, Paul's writing in the day to the Corinthians when they knew this word, macrothumia, being patient with other people. These Corinthians lived in a Greek culture. Many of these Corinthians, if not all of them, were just totally pagan to the core before they heard the gospel and got saved. They got saved out of a totally pagan Greek culture. And they reigned supreme, or who reigned supreme in terms of the worldview of the day in which they were raised, were the Greek philosophers, all the way from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and so many others. And that was the worldview. And there was a Greek, uh, there were Greek virtues that clashed with biblical virtues. And one of the ones that clashed was biblical patience with uh, the opposite, which was the Greek attitude towards patience. The Greeks had actually no, uh, they didn't see patience with people as a virtue. As a matter of fact, Aristotle, the great Greek pagan philosopher who was so influential and a teacher. He had his own set of virtues, many of which were not biblical. They were the exact opposite of being biblical. And one of the great virtues of Aristotle was uh, that you were to strike back when anyone insulted you. You don't absorb uh, an insult from anybody. You strike back. You retaliate. In other words, you, you're not patient with people. Strike back. Dog eat dog. King of the hill. The last one standing wins. That was kind of the great. It was pretty vicious. And that was what they were probably raised with, that kind of mindset. So this is a radical change in worldview, attitude, mindset towards those that it's difficult to live with or uh, people who try your patience. So you need supernatural help. Only a believer really can fulfill this the way God has intended. So being patient with people, especially people who are hard to deal with, let's start in the home. Uh, this is the biblical virtue. Romans twelve seventeen says, don't pay back evil for evil. Be patient. Be patient. Wait them out. Wait. Really, you know what you're waiting on? You're waiting on God is what you're doing when you're being patient. 
You're not waiting for your enemy to die. Some of you might be thinking that, but you're real, you're waiting on God. That's the, that's the step of faith. Waiting on God. Okay, God, you know what's going on here. God, you know that person, right? You know what they're doing. You know the injustice. You know the trial I'm going through. You know the hardship. You know what suffering I'm doing. Yes, he does, actually. Are you going to trust him and wait it out and be supernaturally patient like Jesus and see and let God set things aright or let God do justice or let God have his vengeance so that we don't usurp that from him? Like I said, Jesus is the greatest example of being patient with other people who don't deserve it. Luke 23, 34 on the, on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. You talk about patience. Many of these people were the ones saying, crucify him, crucify him. And just days later, hours later, Jesus is saying, Father, be patient, forgive them. Because of their ignorance, what a beautiful thing, the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And another portrait of beautiful patience from Almighty God and His grace is Second Peter 3, 9, where it says, don't count God's patience as inability or something that's uh, careless or ineffective, but it's the patience of God that enables people to not see His wrath so soon when they deserve it. And over time, God waits and He waits and He waits and He waits for the wooing and the conviction and the repentance so that they might hear and believe and be saved. So it's God's supernatural patience, actually, that leads to salvation of sinners. The wonderful virtue of God's patience. Uh, the Corinthians, they were not patient with each other. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, where they were arguing and fighting with each other. If you're fighting and arguing with someone, a fellow Christian, you're not patient. You're not being patient with them. So let's, with the power of the Holy Spirit, after the model of Christ, as responsible Christians, lay this before God and ask Him to help us to be more supernaturally patient, especially those who are hard to deal with from our perspective. So love is patient. Next virtue about love, love is kind. Love literally is being kind. Love is continually kind. Patience has to do kind of with our attitude, and it's like uh, you can't really see it. It's not an outward act. You can see the opposite of it. So patience is kind of that temperament on the inside of self-control. Kindness is an outward manifestation. That's a blessed thing, and uh, a manifestation of love. Being kind. Love is being kind. Patience will take anything from other people. Kindness will give anything to other people. That is good and blessed. Uh, this word for kindness, it is a deliberate act of service. So if you're not doing it, it doesn't count. It's not kindness. Kindness has to be done and manifest. A kind deed. It's a, listen to this. It is a kind, biblical kindness is a deliberate act of service to someone else that is helpful or useful to them. You know, there are sometimes we do something for somebody else and we say, oh, I was kind. But actually they weren't blessed by it. They didn't benefit from your act of kindness. They didn't even notice your so-called kindness because it wasn't useful to them. It didn't mean, mean anything. This kind of kindness is deliberately helpful for them. It's useful to them. It blesses and graces them. It is without condition. In other words, you can be kind deliberately to somebody, not just who you like, but somebody that you don't prefer or you don't like. Maybe it's that person you have problem patience, being patient with. And, and you're kind to that person. So it's a deliberate 
act of service to grace them, to bless them, that, uh, a deed that is useful to them, and you're doing it without con- condition. You're not prejudiced towards the person you're being kind to. It is active goodwill. It's not just refraining from being mean. Have you been kind to your little brother, Johnny? Yes, I haven't hit him in the last hour. No. Refraining from doing bad things is not synonymous with kindness. Kindness is a deliberate act of blessing to benefit that other people. That's what kindness is. Jesus was kind. Uh, we have many examples in uh, Scripture that tell us so. Titus 3, 4 is one particular. It says, remember the kindness of God that appeared. The kindness of God that appeared. What was that? Well, that the Lord Jesus came into the world and that he saved us. He saved us. What was kind about it? Well, he saved us according to his mercy apart from our works. In other words, we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We were his enemy, and yet he was kind to us, showed his grace, and he saved us. He's the master of true biblical love, manifesting kindness towards somebody else for our good. Another just practical kind thing that Jesus did is the Last Supper, when everybody should have been washing his feet, and he gets up and he just washes the disciples' feet. That was just a practical kind thing to do. It was basically common courtesy in that day. It still is. You go into somebody's house... Somebody in the house, the servant in the house, somebody needs to wash your feet as the guest. And here's Jesus, the master of the universe. He's washing their dirty, smelly, stinky feet. They did not deserve it. That was just kind. That was kind. The Lord Jesus. Well, the Corinthians, they weren't kind. They're going to the, the fellowship meal, the love feast. They're not being kind. The kind thing to do would be to look around and see, oh, okay, uh, fellowship meal. Oh, look at that person is over in the corner all by themselves. They don't have any friends. Nobody's talking to them. They probably feel rather awkward and lonely and isolated. Maybe I should do the kind thing and go talk to that person even though I don't know them. Or maybe I should go talk to them even though I know them and don't prefer them and I'm going to be kind and I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to share some of my food. Well, in the Corinthian congregation, the exact opposite was happening. Uh, they were hoarding their food. They were purposely neglecting some of the people and even they knew consciously apparently that some people didn't have any food and were hungry and they didn't care they weren't being kind that's just not being a christian manifesting the love of christ is just being kind and kind just a little act of kindness can go a long way just little things little kind acts and deeds can really bless someone's soul so those are the two positive uh definitions uh, that paul gives being patient with people that are hard to deal with and then proactively being kind just doesn't have to be big grandiose things just little things little blessed acts of kindness that are so encouraging he goes on verse four now he starts this list of things that love is not and the first one there is that love is not jealous love is not jealous the word jealous comes from where we get the word zeal so this has to do with strong desire many times related to strong inner emotion zeal Sometimes it's a positive word. Sometimes it's a negative word, depending upon the context. Love is not jealous. Actually, love is not being jealous. We could say love is not being illegitimately jealous. There is a legitimate kind of jealous. God is jealous, says the Old Testament, as it defines God. That's a legitimate kind of jealousy. He's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his people. He's jealous for his truth, and rightfully so. This is an illegitimate kind of jealousy. And it starts in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, on the inside. And we begin to, the the word means boil. Boiling on the inside. As we're thinking about the other person in the church, by the way. Love is not being jealous towards other people in the local church. There's two ways that we can be jealous. 
Two ways to be jealous. The first way, very common, is desiring what somebody else has. They got an award. They got recognized. And, oh, I want that. I want that car. I want that dress. I want their income. I want where they live. I want their house. I want their spiritual gift. I want to sing up there. I want to preach. I want to teach a class. I want whatever it is. And that can turn into an illegitimate desire. When it's illegitimate, then it becomes jealousy that is not a manifestation of love because you're not thinking the right way about that other person. Instead of, man, I wish I had what they had. You're only, that's, we, if we do that, we're actually uh, insulting God because we don't believe that what we have is sufficient from God who knows best for us, right? He is the great gift giver. He knows what we need. He's given us what we need. He'll take care of us. He's a loving father. We need to be content with what we have. And when we're jealous for other things, we're really undermining God's grace and sufficiency of taking care of us as our heavenly father. So the first way to be jealous is desiring what others have. The second way, which is even more uh, sinister of jealousy, is desiring uh, that people didn't have what they have. Not just you want what they have. It's, ooh, they got that, and man, I wish they didn't have that. That's hateful, actually. Why, why did they get that? I wish they didn't have it. The exact opposite. We should be rejoicing with someone when they are blessed. That's what Scripture says. If you're a Christian, you're loving, they're in the family, they're a brother and sister in Christ, God enabled them to have it. We should be rejoicing and celebrating with their achievement, with their gift, with their possession, whatever it is they have been blessed with. We should rejoice in our hearts with them. And it is so easy as fallen humans to fall prey to these wrong thoughts in our heart and our mind. And we've got to constantly be on guard, guarding our heart, guarding our mind, asking for God to help us to keep our emotions and our thought life in check because it is so easy for all of us as humans to become illegitimately jealous towards others. I think of a, a very unique and rare passage in Mark 9, uh, 38 and 40, because there are a few other times in scriptures where Jesus said, if you are for me, um, you're either against me or for me. There's no in between, but in Mark 9, 38, 40, John the Apostle sees some other people doing miracles in Jesus' name. And apparently John didn't know who they were. Hey, they're not one of the 12 uh, apostles. They're, they're not in the in crowd. They're not the cool guys. What's up with that? Jesus, they are calling your name, doing miracles. And John's like thinking Jesus is going to say, yeah, let's stop them. Let's shut them down. That operation they got going. And Jesus rebukes John, the loving apostle, for not being loving. And he says, you know what, John? He who is not against us is for us. Don't be jealous. That's what he was saying. Amazing. Well, the Corinthians, they they were very jealous in an illegitimate manner because they were jealous particularly of one another's spiritual gifts, and especially the showy gifts. They were jealous about speaking in tongues and they were jealous about prophecy. That's going to become very clear in chapter 14. That's why Paul's writing this. You guys are jealous about spiritual gifts. That is a joke. That is pathetic. That is wrong. That is so unloving. See, that's, he keeps, it's got to keep going back to that. That is so unloving. If you're jealous, that's unloving. If you're not kind, that is unloving. If you are impatient with people, that is unloving. And the basic virtue of being a Christian is loving as Christ loved. Let's continue in verse 4 with the next one of what love, and we'll close with this one. Um, Love is not jealous, and love does not brag. It's an interesting, unique Greek word because it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. But it, it has to do with our words. Verbal expression. By the way, 
love does not brag goes hand in hand with love is not arrogant. Arrogant is kind of the spirit and the attitude. But before it comes this one, love is not bragging. That's the words that come out of our mouth as a result of our arrogant spirit and attitude. This word here, do not, love does not brag. Love does not parade its own accomplishments verbally. When you're bragging, you're trying and speaking about yourself. You're trying to make others jealous of you and what you have. This is building yourself up with your own words, quoting your resume. This is the opposite of what Proverbs says, let another man's lips praise you and not your own. A person who struggles with this is somebody who just, in conversation, the main topic of conversation whenever they're talking is themselves. Me, me, me. So that's good for all of us to stop, pause. What is the main topic of conversation typically for me when I engage in conversations with people? Is it all about me? And in a complimentary way, am I always bragging about me, talking about me, and making me the center of attention? Well, love doesn't brag. Quoting our resume, name-dropping, talking about self. So we need to be other-oriented. Like Jesus. He is the epitome, the example of this kind of love. He didn't brag about himself. Uh, He came to glorify the Father, and he did that incessantly and perfectly. And he came to glorify and speak about truth. Jesus said, deny self. And that's how Jesus lived his life for 33 years, denying himself as the God-man, as the suffering servant in service to others. He didn't brag about himself, even though he was sinless and God in the flesh. The Corinthians, unfortunately, that's they did a lot of this bragging about themselves. And we, again, from 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, we know that they were actually verbally bragging about their gifts, their showy gifts. I speak in tongues. I'm a prophet. God gives me this. God gives me that. Uh, Paul highlights, highlights in 1 Corinthians 4 where they were bragging about uh, they were uh, more uh, intelligent than Paul. They were also bragging about the clique they were a part of. I am of Apollos. I'm not in the Paul group. I'm in the better one, the Apollos group. So they were bragging out loud about themselves. We have arrived. We are kings. We are regal. We are royal. We're reigning in the king. And so Paul's uh, actually showing all this in 1 Corinthians 4 of how they were actually bragging about themselves, which is the exact opposite of biblical selfless love. So we'll go ahead and stop there and we'll pick up with uh, love is not being arrogant and we'll probably be able to finish all the way up through uh, verse 7 or 8 next week with the rest of these virtues. This is enough really This is very challenging uh, to try to get your arms around this and your mind around this. God, um, this is so hard. This is such a challenge. But it is God's expectation for us as the children of God. And we are empowered by the Spirit of God because we know Jesus Christ personally to actually live this out. And let's go ahead with God's help. Start by living these wonderful virtues of true biblical love, being patient with people, being kind deliberately, not being jealous and not bragging about ourselves starting today after the service as we drive home and with moms and family today with God's help all for His glory. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together as a body, uh, also for our time in the Word. God, I do pray that You would help us with Your Holy Spirit to be reminded of true biblical love, that thankfully, Lord, You have given a portrait so that we can clearly see it in action in the Gospels, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also through the extensive teaching from the Apostles and the rest of the New Testament, and in particular these uh, four very specific reminders 
today of the character of true biblical love. God, forgive us where we have fallen short and sinned against you in this area of a lack of love. And God, help us to seek forgiveness from others, other believers and other people where we have fallen short even recently and not manifesting this love. God, we need to repent. We need to be exposed. We need your forgiveness. We need to be restored. We need to continue to pursue the goal and keep growing by your grace. We thank you. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.